She Did It Her Way podcast, episode 243, How to Bounce Back with Only $400 in Your Business Account with Christina Stemble, founder of Farm Girl Flowers. Hello and welcome to She Did It Her Way, a podcast dedicated to helping you launch a business that allows you the freedom to create from anywhere, design your own schedule in a way that supports you, and pursue what it is that lights you up. I'm Amanda Boleyn, your host, and it is time to do it your way. Hi guys, before we dive into today's podcast episode, I wanted to give you another reminder. Today is the last day, Thursday, March 15th for Early Bird for She Did It Her Way Summit tickets. So make sure that if you are planning on coming or even if you can't come in person, but you want to still access the content, you can purchase the virtual pass, which still, which allows you to gain access to all the content after the summit has taken place. And so make sure you head on over to www.shedidaherwaysummit.com to snag those tickets before prices go up. Some highlights and things that you guys are going to hear in today's episode is you're going to hear how Christina bounced back from only having $411 in her business account. We talk about understanding the benefits of focus groups. We also talk about the time when she asked for outside investment but was turned down and then later she was sought after because of the growth of her business. And I love when she shares that story. And we talk about knowing why and how having the right company culture is crucial for success along with developing ways to remain authentic while scaling your company and so much more. You guys, I'm hanging out with Christina Stemble from, well, born and raised in Indiana, which clearly we bonded over that because we're both Midwesterners. And we're also from states that begin with the letter I, which is cool. I don't know why that's cool, right? Um, Yeah, it's definitely cool. Yeah. Well, Christina, you thank you so much for coming on the show as the founder of Farm Girl Flowers. And I just fell in love with what you are doing and I love the concept, but I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell our listeners, my listeners, what it is that you do. And then we'll just have a conversation about entrepreneurship and jam out. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Amanda. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I have a company called Farm Girl Flowers and uh, we are a direct-to-consumer e-com flower company. So like the companies that you think of uh, when you think of going online on your computer and ordering flowers, Uh, We like to think a little bit better, though. Instead of having hundreds of options like uh, many of the companies do, we only have a few curated options. And uh, we, you know, reduce the choice for consumers on what the flower types are. So that way we can reduce our waste from 40% down to under 1%. And that allows us to offer designer quality arrangements at the same uh, kind of generic e-com prices as everyone else. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys are massive. Let's not downplay uh, yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, we're getting bigger, which is awesome. Um, our growth has been amazing. I'm so grateful for our growth. Um, it's been wonderful. Uh, it, you know, I started Farm Girl always with the intention to grow it to a billion dollar company, um, which is what the other uh, companies do every year in revenue. And so it was never with the thought that I was going to, you know, be a, a local or even regional flower shop. It was it was to compete with the big guys. So I'm really excited that it's it's on track to do that. Yeah, I mean, I was when I was looking up some of the information too about the company. You guys did fifty six thousand in revenue your first year, and then went to I think it was like half a million, and then you went right under a million in your third year. 
Yeah, we did 56 to 276 from year one to two. And I thought that was amazing because I was like, 5X growth, amazing, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was still in my dining room apartment, you know, um, the dining room of my apartment um, back then. So uh, then from there, we moved into a space and I hired my first employee and it was really scary um, to do that. But it went from 276 to 920 Yeah, that, that next year. Yeah, oh. and then 1.9 and then 4.4 and then 10.2. Two, I think so. We've we've been doing you know now over fifteen. So we've been doing one hundred percent growth almost every year. It gets more challenging to do that once we cross ten million. But you know, <laughs> girl, that is a lot of zeros. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's funny because um, my husband always tells me more money, more problems. Because I'm like, I thought it was supposed to get easier with more zeros, but it doesn't. <laughs> it gets a little more freaky when you're working with that much. You know? oh my gosh. So. And I want to dive into the more money, more problems in terms of like things that you've experienced or how they change as you get up in revenue growth. And then I also want to talk about just in general, um, how you like your mindset and maybe for you, you're like, oh, I just I was doing me and then the company, of course, five X or whatnot. But like breaking down what are some tactical things that my listeners can implement in their business to experience the same type of exponential growth. But just to set the foundation, can you walk us through high level some of the key uh, timeline dates of like in your career because you were working at Stanford prior and then how did it evolve that you're like I'm gonna do farm girl flaw or you know how did that happen yeah yeah so I um was that person that drove everybody nuts with a different business idea every week (laughs) or every day sometimes um you know I had like an idea notebook with me at all times and I would like you know, really annoy all of my friends and family. Every girl's night would turn into like a beta testing night. And I'd be like, Hey guys, what do you think of these like iron on pockets for women's suits? And (laughs) I mean, everything like, so it was, it was across the gamut. Most people think because it's a creative industry, I think, um, the, the easy assumption is to think that that person just has a passion for what that, that is that they're doing. And I actually think that's one of the reasons why we're so successful or can be so successful is because I don't. Um, I really love flowers. I, I knew that I would probably start a business in something creative because that was, you know, what I'm really good at in life is making things pretty, which I didn't always appreciate. Um, but it, it, you know, it's a skill set that God gave me basically. And so I knew it'd probably be creative. However, I had no idea what area it would be in. So you know, it really ran the gamut of all different, like you know, website of tools for event planners, iron-on pockets for women's suits. I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and the things though, that I knew that I wanted the company to do, you know, whichever idea that I, I landed on was I wanted it to be able to scale big. And so I think that's really important is to actually look at what the market size is and see what your potential is within that market, how much share you can take from other people or grow, you know, a a new category in something, but it couldn't be just a small number. So I needed it to be, you know, like, the floral online floral space is over $3 billion. So I knew that that was big enough that even if I could just take, you know, five or 10% of it's still a really large number. Um, So that was one box it needed to check, it needed to do something good in the world. So I didn't want, you know, to sell toilet paper, even though that's absolutely fine. And there is a need for that. You know, Um, I just (laughs) wanted, you know, and there's probably a way to sell toilet paper in a way that that is really good for the world. So I don't want to bash anybody selling toilet paper. But I, I wanted it to, you know, to, to be something that I could feel good about when I got up in the morning that I'm doing something really good. And I've actually found that even toilet paper would be great at this because it's actually kind of how you grow your company and the decisions you make internally about creating good jobs and things like that. So you could do that in any industry. 
I didn't have that um, experience to know that back then. So I thought it had to be something more kind of in your face, obvious, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted um, it to solve a real problem. So a lot of my ideas, even though I thought that not having pockets in my my suits was a huge problem, and that's why I came <laughs> up with that idea, um, I wanted it to solve a real problem for for a lot of consumers out there. And so when I came up with the idea for Farm World, I was working at Stanford, like you mentioned, and one of the departments that I oversaw did the events for the law school. And I noticed how much we were spending on uh, decor and flowers, especially when we were ordering flowers. I was like, why do they cost so much? So that just started me down the track, the you know rabbit hole of research on the floral space and you know, trying to figure out like, why are we spending, you know, between 100 and 200 dollars on these centerpieces and ordering 50 at a time, they're just going home with the, you know, the wait staff at the end of the night. Um, number one, I thought that was wasteful. But then number two, I was like, just why do they cost so much? And so when I started researching the industry, I saw that actually the event space was a very small percentage of the overall space. And I saw e-com as a bigger potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just started, you know, making me research all of the, the problems uh, in the industry as I saw them and trying to come up with an innovative model that could solve those problems. And so, you know, when I came up with the idea for Farm Realm, it was kind of my Oprah aha moment um, uh, because the last box that it had to check that I just knew um, was going to be the case was this was back in 07, 08, um, and the economic downturn had happened. And I also, I have no college education. I, I, I think I have like 20 credits or something. <laughs> That's it. But I, I, don't, um, I don't have, you know, a Stanford MBA um, like out here in Silicon Valley, it's kind of the norm uh, for entrepreneurs or, or you know, any fancy education. And nor did I have any pedigree from like, oh, this former, you know, ex-Google executive started this company. So right. I knew, yeah, I knew it was going to be impossible for me to go and try to raise capital. It just wasn't going to be in the cards for me. So whatever idea that I came up with that I decided to, to go with and, and launch had to be something that I could bootstrap. And so I saved some money and um, more people I keep talking to, it actually was more money than now I look back on. And it was not a lot of money. I had $49,000 in my bank account. And I thought back then that that was enough to start a company. And it was, we didn't run out of money. I gave myself two years or until I ran out of money and we got very close. Oh. Um, you know, <laughs> I got down to $411 at one point. Oh my, okay, um, well, I want to hear that story too. So I'm putting that on my list of things that I want to go back to. Okay. Continue. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, so I I decided that this was the idea that because I live in San Francisco and there's a a phenomenal flower mart here, I could go buy small quantities of flowers. If I was somewhere else, this idea probably wouldn't have worked in the same way um, because I wouldn't have had access to the raw materials basically and without having to, to source a lot at a time. But it worked here where I was at. So it's just kind of all the chips lined up. And I, I did think it was, you know, definitely a big enough idea. And it was, like I said, an aha moment. I was like, this could work. This could really work. And it was innovative. I didn't want to just copy someone else's idea, which I see happen all the time. I wanted to come up with something on my own. Um, I just have, you know, pride of ownership, I, I believe a lot in. And um, so I just wanted to do that. And, and I was able to, and I came up with this model that nobody had done before. Um, and it was really challenging to re-educate consumers on how to purchase flowers differently. But it was also really rewarding to be like, wow, I did that. And now so many people are doing it. But I did it first. And um, they wouldn't have been here maybe if I hadn't come up with it first, the other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you originally, like, did you have Farm, Farm Girl in your mind for a long time? Or was that part of the Oprah aha moment where you're like, oh, this is this is the name. This is it. 
No, the the name was really funny. Um, I didn't have the name at all figured out. I came up with the concept first um, and then tried to find a name. And remember, I mean, I just sat there on GoDaddy forever <laughs> trying, <laughs> typing in names like what's open. And then it kind of just hit me. I grew up on a farm. Um, uh, some friends way back in the day used to call me farm girl, uh, ironically. Um, <laughs> and so I thought farm girl flowers and it, it, you know, conveys what we do. And, you know, it was a personal nickname that people called me years ago. And my mom's the real farm girl. She grew up like working in the fields in a big way, you know, much harder than I had to. We had to, you know, pick up rocks, the field and stuff like that, but we never had to work as hard as, as she did. So I, you know, joke that she's the real farm girl, but you know, it, it just worked and just crazy. It was open. <laughs> the URL was open, which doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I mean, I think of a URL and I'm like, that sounds really, like a really good idea. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I'm going to buy it. <laughs> yep. At one point I owned over 40. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I think it's down to like, I think I own 11 or 12 right now. It's like a so, secret yeah. habit. I feel like yeah. that it's like a guilty pleasure. Um, I'm like, it's $12 a year. What, you know, like, why wouldn't I? It's such (laughs) a great insurance policy to keep that domain name. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So now, I mean, when I was doing, you guys are in your what year? Because you started back in 2010, November 7, 2010. So we're in our seventh year. Oh my goodness. Okay. So um, going back to the more, more money, more problems. So I would love for you to share just what do you attribute the exponential growth year over year to, if you could break it down into maybe like three or five key takeaways. Yeah. I was just talking to some girlfriends that are also entrepreneurs and they were asking me the same question. So I've spent a lot of time recently thinking about this. Um, because up until recently I would just say like, you know, it's just a ton of hard work. It was just like busting your, (laughs) you know what, like I was just Mm -hmm. working my tail off, um, you know, pounding the pavement, going to, you know, networking events all the time to get the name out there. However, I actually think, um, the way we were able to grow so quickly, um, was by always, or by several years, we added huge areas, uh, geographic areas that we provided service to. So that, of course, is going to grow your number. So, um, for instance, you know, when I started Farm Girl, I knew that I was going to get national shipping going. That was always from day one. Like, I need to be a national shipping company. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't, like I said, to be a regional flower shop. I thought I would have that done in 12 to 24 months. That was the plan. It took me five years <laughs> to oh. get it going. What was it yeah. about it? Why did it take five years? Or like, what sort of things did you run into? Um, I figured out, well, you know, the reason that it isn't done very often is because it's so hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, naively, I was just like, oh, it can't be that hard. Just get some boxes and start shipping, right? Um, mm. No. So it was uh, the shipping rates were the big uh, barrier to being able to do it. So um, you know, to ship uh, even back then, and I'm sure it's much more now with the increases, but back then in 2015 to ship a standard size flower box that we were using, which was smaller than a lot of our competitors, actually, um, it would cost $127 to oh ship that. Oh my overnight. gosh. Yeah. And nobody's going to pay $127 to ship and I couldn't subsidize it by that much. So I needed to get, um, a shipping rate that consumers could afford However, I couldn't do that. Even with every kind of discount that I could find, um, with there's a lot of uh, you know trade discounts that I 
had to work to try to become a part of this, this industry side. So that way we could get this discount, um, you know, pertain, you know, that would work for us. So, um, it took a long time and, uh, I did some focus groups even to find out what consumers would be willing to pay. And it was low. I mean, it's, it's, you know, consider that Amazon with their prime is really, uh, changing the way consumers purchase, I think online Mm -hmm. a lot where they just, you know, assume that shipping should be free. Um, I just heard, you know, heard my mom say that at Christmas, we were talking about it and she's like, Oh no, I won't buy it if it's, if I have to pay for shipping. And I'm like, mom, don't think that. Yeah, because, don't, you know, don't, don't say that. Yeah, don't, and you know, I think, but I was kind of that way too. I would never shop without a discount code before. And now I don't need a discount code. In fact, I don't use discount codes because I usually, because I want to support the company unless it's like Amazon or something like that. But you know, <laughs> I want to support the company. And I know what that might cost them, but, um, I digress, but with shipping, uh, you know, consumers like $15 was kind of the benchmark they wouldn't go over for shipping. And we had to launch with $25 shipping, which we still have, um, because I, you know, have to subsidize that heavily still. So like to ship a box from San Francisco to New York, it costs us $40 to ship that box and we charge 25. So I'm subsidizing $15 for every box mm. that we ship out to New York. So I needed to get, you know, I did a lot of financial analysis to find out, you know, what, what did I think the average, um, subsidy would be that I would need to, to afford to do. And then I had to save money. So I knew I needed to get the subsidies down to where we were subsidizing $10 per box. And, um, then I knew I had to set a number that was big enough to make it worth doing, but small enough that I wouldn't lose my shirt. So our, you know, daily, uh, just cap that we could afford to ship initially was 200 boxes a day. And, you know, therefore I knew that I needed to save about $400,000 before I could launch the program for the year. Um, and thankfully it, I actually probably could have launched it a little bit sooner than I did because we didn't need to dip into the full 400,000. We have subsidized over a million dollars now in the last two years though of shipping. Yeah. I just did the analysis breakdown. Um, and seeing all those zeros is really painful um, to see how much would have been profit if I hadn't subsidized, but we needed to. And, um, and, you know, thankfully, uh, and just, I was really surprised that the shipping program went once we launched and the reason I just needed to launch. And I think this is really a good, um, tidbit is, you know, I'm very, I'm very big into getting your minimum viable product out there. Like just get it out there. Um, I knew that I was just needed to like stop talking about shipping and just do it. Mm. And because that would that would give me invaluable information back from the consumer about what was working and not working. And it would also help me start um, getting my, you know, buying power up with the shipping companies. Just, you know, having something to take to them and be like, you know, this is how much we're doing because this is all I can afford. But, you know, the market's responding well. And this is what I think my growth can be next year in this area. So just having it out there. And so that's why I finally did it. I was like, okay, I don't know that I can really afford this. I'm going to take a you know leap of faith. The numbers show that I can, you know, <laughs> and have the spreadsheet to back it up. If everything goes according to a spreadsheet, which we all know ne- never does. Right. Um, <laughs> but let's, let's try it and, and go. It's go time. Let's do it. Um, so in 2014, we launched um, Bay Area Delivery, Hand Delivery. So that helped us get, just to go back to your original question, then I kind of go down a rabbit hole a lot. Sorry about that. It's a great Um, (laughs) rabbit hole, though. Well, I think, I mean, just in that story alone brings up, I mean, part of entrepreneurship is, you know, you can plan as much as you want. And then it just, at some point, you just have to pull the trigger and say, well, figure it out once it happens. Like, let's just do this. Let's get it out. Exactly. And 
a lot of times the feedback from consumers I found is very different. It, it provides you information that you never would have thought about. Like originally when I launched Farm Girl, we only had one size product. There wasn't small, medium, large options. And it was for a lower price point. And there were smaller uh, bouquets. And I found that people were buying them for themselves instead of for gifts. And I thought, oh, oh no, this, yeah, this is like, this could be bad because I'm going into the gifting space and people aren't buying them for gifts. And a gifting space is much bigger than if you're going to buy it personally because you'll spend more on a gift than you will on yourself. And how am I going to make the unit economics work if everybody's buying for themselves? Um, and so I had a little focus group then. This was back in 2011, a year after I started Farm Girl. And um, it was still in my apartment at that time. And my focus group was 10 people at a wine bar <laughs> where I asked them <laughs> questions. And yes. that it purchased from us two times or more. Um, and so I just asked them like why they were buying for themselves and not other people. And they, the feedback they gave me was invaluable. And it saved, it sped up like me having to wait another year before I figured this out. Um, what were some that, of their reasons? Yeah, their feedback was that they didn't want, if it was going to be a gift, number one, they were too small um, because my original arrangements were really small. I, my you know, original idea was that I wanted to make it accessible for everybody. So we had this really low price point with delivery all in, it was under $40. And um, they were like, they're too small. If I want a gift, I want it to be like a big gift. And um, I also don't want the recipient to know how much I spent on them. And since you only have everything is the same price on your site, and it's just this size, a smaller size, then basically they were telling me without saying it in these terms that I was the Taco Bell. You know? oh. And they don't want to send Taco Bell as a gift. They want to send like the higher end restaurant. They're like, gift, I'll eat you know? the Crunchwrap Supreme, uh, but I'm not going to buy it for my my friend. <laughs> exactly. We all love, you know, I'm, I'm not like disparaging uh, Taco Bell. I hope they don't come after me. Um, no. But because, you know, they do what they do and they do it really well. Um, but, you know, I didn't, as a gift in the gifting category, you're probably not sending Taco Bell to somebody as a gift. You're eating it yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. So I needed to, to, change that. So I came back and immediately added sizes that are coded. So the recipient doesn't know which size they're getting. Only the sender does. Um, and made our bouquets much bigger, um, increase the size of them, increase the price, which was great. Cause we wouldn't be in business if we still had that price point that we had at the beginning and, um, and, and change the, the business completely. So, um, you just have to pivot all the time and listen to your consumers, which, um, helped us continue that rapid growth because, you know, Somebody on my team said it really well, and we say this all the time now. Um, she said it years ago, and it's still true. She says, she said, every two weeks, our business is a completely new business. Mm. So, and it's true. We change on a dime. We flip. We adjust. We. Um, it's the only way that we're. The only reason that we're still here is that we constantly pivot to and change with what we need to do to in order to to continue to to be around. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never answered your question about no, how actually you did. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, we just added more geographic areas. So we started Bay Area, then we added California shipping, then we added national shipping and every adding, you know, every year, you know, just automatically made us do more in business because, uh, you know, people were waiting on us to be able to do national shipping. That was our, one of our biggest requests from people was when are we going to be able to get this out of San Francisco and, and everywhere else. And so once we were, were able to do that, that was the year we did the went from 4.4 to 10.2. Gosh, um, that's amazing. Yeah. How, it was crazy. Take <laughs> us back. I mean, you previously mentioned too that um, the $411 in your account. <laughs> yeah. Can you 
elaborate <laughs> on that? And like, what what point in your business did you find yourself there? And you know, when you look back, was it just natural evolution of growing a business and that's kind of there's a tipping point or were the things that you could have done to potentially hedge against that um, that experience from happening? Those are great questions. Um, I, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. I am really, yeah, I'm, I'm really uh, just personally, I don't like debt. Um, I could have probably brought in some debt early on, which would have helped with um, scaling even quicker. And, uh, you know, people are always telling me there's good debt. It's totally fine. But to me, it was just uh, basically if I couldn't make the unit economics work without bringing in debt, then it wasn't going to be a viable company. So I wanted to see if it could be a viable company. Mm. And it just scared me to death that I would have this huge loan that I would need to pay back. Um, And until you're two years old, it's really hard for companies to get get a loan at all. Um, But after that, I probably could have gotten a loan. Um, But I think it actually made us healthier, honestly, the worry about money um, and not having money and constantly the struggle of not running out of money because I know every dime that we spend at the company. I still do. Like this is going to be the biggest thing, you know, the hardest point for me to give up some control of uh, as we continue to grow or, you know, hopefully going to bring in some outside capital and I'll actually be building a team of people that I'll need to give up some of the control on the finance side. Um, but I'm in our bank accounts three times a day, mm-hmm. every day still. And I know my team, like they get an email from me usually on the weekend, late at night when I'm working on the finance part <laughs> and it'll be like, what are these expenses for? Please let me know. And I mean, you know, I need to like put them in the appropriate buckets. So I need to know what they are for, but they know that I'm watching every time as well, Right. you know, and, it's so easy to run out of money. And I have many, many friends that have found themselves entrepreneur friends, you know, with a huge loan that they have to repay and no way of actually getting there because the unit economics for what they're selling just aren't working. And if they were working, they wouldn't have had to take this loan out probably. You know, it's different to have a credit line. You know, we have a credit line that, you know, sometimes you have to pull from before a big holiday to pay things off beforehand that, you know, you know, I'll pull from it and then pay it back three weeks later, you know, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. Um, but when I got down to $411, it was scary, really, really scary. I didn't tell my husband because I was like, I don't want him to know that. <laughs> You're you like, know? if I tell anyone, then it becomes more real than what it actually is. <laughs> that is so true. Amanda, that's it's so even true. like if you're um, sick or something, you're like, no, I'm not sick. I'm fine. Nope. I'm fine. Yep. We're not admitting I, I really that. believe in that. Like, yep. <laughs> yeah. One of the questions that you asked was, you know, the first thought I have in the morning um, was, oh man, I'm tired. And then I just tell myself, you got this, go, you know, like, yeah. go. Um, I feel like if you tell yourself you're not tired, you won't be tired a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, kind of the same thing. No, totally. Uh, yeah. So, um, I was freaked out when I got down to that amount. There were some checks that I knew were coming, um, from some, you know, uh, events. We had two events that I had done previously. So I was just waiting on those checks, but, um, it was scary. And I just, you know, I was, so frugal and I'm still so frugal. Um, you know, starting out, that was back when it was in my apartment. It was a one and a half um, years in. And I just, you know, I didn't even drink coffee then because I couldn't, you know, I didn't want to spend the money. I could get tea bags, Lipton tea bags for like six cents a tea bag. And so, um, I mean, I was so frugal. I did not spend a dime on some, anything I, I didn't need and slowly built it back up. But it, you know, it's, it was challenging. And then hiring an employee that made it really real that, you know, if I ran out of money on my own, that was fine. 
But if I ran out of money and I couldn't pay somebody that was relying on me for their livelihood, that was the scariest moment, I think, to me was, crap, somebody else is relying on me to pay their rent. And in San Francisco, the rent is very high. Yeah. <laughs> and if I can't pay their, you know, their, their paycheck, that's on me. And so that's gotten even scarier the more we've grown. We have 108 employees now. <laughs> and, um, they all rely on me for their paycheck. And I take that really seriously. So I think financial... Uh, just knowledge and being really aware of what you're spending money on and, and your responsibility to your team is, is, is really big, really mm-hmm. big. What, and then kind of the, a great segue to that is, um, so when you started out, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe I read this wrong, you, now you have investors approaching you where in the beginning they passed on the opportunity to work with you. So, for you, what do you think's changed? Why now for them? What's your take? What went through your mind? Were you kind of like, oh, now you want me type thing? Or what What was that experience like for you? Yeah, um, I have this secret dream <laughs> that I'm going to go back to all the people from 2014 and 15 that passed on us, you know, and have my pretty woman moment where she goes back in the store and was like, you know, big mistake, huge mistake, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, So I think this is a really great topic to talk about with women. Um, And I tend to overshare. So I hope I'm not going to really. No, this is what the podcast (laughs) is for, girlfriend. Okay, good. I I, I hope my lawyer's not mad at me (laughs) or anything. (laughs) I'll get an email being like, oh, can you edit that, please? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, So I tried to raise capital. I was really unsuccessful. It's not a popular topic, although it's trending right now about how hard it is for women to raise capital. It's true. Uh, just statistically speaking, less than 2% of all capital goes to women owned businesses. Mm-hmm. And I love stats. I love numbers. And I don't think you can argue with numbers. You can, people try and they're like, Oh, it's just because women aren't starting businesses as often. That's not true. Over 50% of all new businesses are started by women. Um, all of the arguments that people make just don't hold up when you look at stats. And I think we just need to call a spade a spade mm-hmm. and say it's true. Like women can't raise capital in the same way that men can. And I found it to be really true. Now you're right. They are coming after us in a, you know, not coming after us in a bad way. It's really, really um, amazing how many uh, inquiries we get right now. But the one thing that has changed is our revenue numbers. That's the only thing. So I think as a woman, this is just my hypo- hypothesis, but I think as a woman, until you hit 10 million in revenue, don't waste your time. And I know that sounds bad to say, but I wish the thing that I wish that I could do differently is not waste 50% of my time that I spent in 2014, 15, trying to raise some external capital. And I could have done, spent that 50% of my time in a much better way um, of growing my company because it, you know, I pitched over 30 companies back then and all of my male counterparts were able to get funding pre-revenue or with far less revenue numbers than us. And the only difference is that they had a pedigree, you know, they had some fancy education, um, and that they're male, you know, uh, you know, there's a couple companies that look identical to us almost. And I'm not saying they copied us for all the lawyers out there. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying there's really no difference in them being able to raise capital and me not being able to other than my gender and my pedigree. What were you told um, in the beginning when you did go raise? Was it because of your pedigree or was it just solely, quote unquote, revenue wasn't where it needed to be? No, the revenue was always like, wow, you know, you're growing really quickly. 
you know, I had some people even tell me in defense of other male counterparts being able to raise uh, pre-revenue was that because I had revenue, it hurt me because they could put whatever numbers they wanted to on a spreadsheet and and show that where I actually had real numbers to show, mm. um, you know, things like that. I mean, just the, the feedback I got was all over the board. A lot of it back then was, um, you know, there was one difference. I was not going down the uh, on-demand delivery uh, kind of rabbit hole again. Um, oh, sure. Know, that was the big thing that people were investing in back then. Like, and I was told by a few uh, venture capital firms that I had to have on-demand delivery or they wouldn't invest. And so I would go back and I would, you know, did 16 different models, financial models, trying to figure out how to make that work. And then I'd come back and be like, I can't make it work unless I charge $50 for delivery. If you can figure it out, let me know and we'll try it. <sighs> you know, and they'd be like, well, no, you need to figure it out, not us. That's why we told you that. And you know, I think what we've seen now is that on-demand delivery is really challenging and a lot of companies are going out of business with on-demand delivery. Um, and I'm really glad that we didn't try to do that because it just, you know, unless I can make it work in a spreadsheet, which is the best case scenario that I didn't want to do it on, you know, in real life. Um, so, you know, there was that and a lot of the other companies were, were touting on-demand delivery. Um, but I just, it was all over the board, but what I really think it is, is uh, Cheryl Sandberg said it really well, and it kind of changed my life when she said, uh, you know, when she talked about implicit bias, and she just said, people trust people that look like them, and it's not malicious, it's not, you know, I'm not, like, upset about this at all, because, I mean, I get it, I trust women way more than I trust men, you know, mm-hmm. but the venture capital and private equity, and private equity is usually for higher revenue companies, but, um, you know, I was pitching it to venture um, funds back then you know, they are mainly all men. So if you're pitching to a room that's 99% male, and not only am I a female, but I'm a solo female founder, I don't have the ubiquitous three founders, you know, in the room. And um, I have a female centric business idea. So my consumer base and everybody's consumer base in flowers is women. And people don't know that like I didn't know that when I started researching. Um, the industry in the space, I assume that men were the ones that bought flowers because that's what all the marketing shows you. It's not true at all. Uh, 79% of people industry wide that purchase flowers are women buying for women. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for us. We're right at right under 80%. So, um, wow. yeah, so we're, you know, women are the ones that buy flowers, not men. The only time of the year that men that that flips on its head is Valentine's day when it's 75% male. Um, so I'm in a room pitching to 50 year old guys an idea that they're not going to purchase, nor do they, you know, care to purchase. And I'm a, you know, solo female founder. I just, this, you know, it's implicit bias. They're just, they're not going to be interested in this company. And I get it. You know, I'm not interested in, in buying Rogaine or, you know, sort of <laughs> like so I totally get it and it's fine, but I just, you know, want to be, keep it real with, you know, females that, you know, technology, if there's male founders, and female founders have a better chance. Um, but as a, you know, as a, as a female founder, especially in a creative space or female centric consumer based type product, um, you just don't have a lot of a shot until you hit 10 million in revenue. And when you hit 10 million in revenue, that changes because what happens is the risk dramatically lessens for the investor. Um, so, you know, once you've proven the concept to hit over 10 million, which by the way, um, only 2% which I've heard it's even less than this of female owned companies ever make it to a million dollars in revenue. Like that's a big feat 
um, to hit over a million, you know, 98% don't make it there as a female uh, founder. So, you know, once you've hit 10 X that, you know, (laughs) yeah, that's incredible. (laughs) Then the risk is much lower. So then of course, you know, more people are interested because you've just taken a lot of the risk out of it and proven the market before you've brought in outside capital. Now it's also really great if you can wait that long to wait that long because you're able to retain a lot more of your company than if you um, got investors early on um, because you still probably own most of, you know, hundred percent of your company or, or close to it. If you have some employees that have some equity. So I don't think it's a bad thing at all. It makes scaling slower. You know, I think of where we could have been if I was able to raise back then right now, and we would hopefully be, you know, at least 5x larger in numbers right now, maybe even 10 if we'd been able to raise back then. Mm-hmm. What, and I mean, because you guys are looking at investors currently at this time to bring on, like, how would financial funds help you and your business at this stage? Uh, I think it's going to help tremendously. Uh, you know, we, we don't need the money in order to keep growing, which is a great place to be. So you're not, um, you know, a lot of people that are trying to raise are, you know, have, you know, a burn rate that's huge and they have, you know, basically a ramp of three or six months left of cash before they're just going to run out of money and go out of business. Mm -hmm. We're not, we're a healthy company. We're profitable. We are self-sustaining. So we can, we're just, you know, plugging all of our, our profit back into growing the company. Um, so we're in a fine place. The reason I want to bring in capital is because I work a ton of hours. (laughs) Yeah. And I work, Literally right now, I'm working 22 hours a day. I'm sleeping two hours and then doing it again oh every gosh. day. And you're like, girlfriend's got to watch Man in the High Castle when that comes <laughs> exactly. out, right? Exactly. Which, I don't know what I'm going to do when that comes out. Yeah. <laughs> um, just so you guys are listening, we were talking about um, shows and stuff we got on the topic and Man in the High Castle was brought up, which is on Amazon. And we're waiting for the third season to drop, but the Amazon has not released a drop date. So we're stalking oh. that. <laughs> Yep. It's, I'm so impatient. And that's the only thing I was telling you earlier. It's the only thing that I'll actually put my computer down <laughs> for is that show to watch it. Um, yeah. uh, so I can't wait for that. Um, but I'm kind of glad it hasn't come out because I don't have time to watch it right now. Um, because it's just, I work a ton of hours and I just, you know, I don't say that as a humble brag. I say it as a, a way that, you know, if you're not willing to put in at least 16 hours a day, um, it's really hard, especially with a perishable product company which might not have been the wisest idea after all. Um, but it's really hard. And so um, I can keep doing this, but I can't keep doing it for another 20 years. You know, I'm, I'm tired and I, I want to be able to bring in a team that will help me get to the billion dollar mark quicker than I can on my own. And it's going to take years, so many years to do it on my own, where I think that the external capital will help me get there quicker. So that way I don't die. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we yeah. need we need the founder for as long as possible. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. I love it. What um, talking about? I just I love your story and I love like how you share it too. What is? I know that you guys have recently pivoted and changed um like the marijuana industry. I don't the cannabis. I, what's a proper terminology for that? Yeah, cannabis. Cannabis. So. Yeah, now, it, it's yeah. it's definitely um, shifting. I I read an article, especially when it comes to flowers. So how has that impacted your guys' business? Yeah, um, which for it, the record, it, I never thought I would be talking yeah. or say the word cannabis on the podcast. <laughs> so here we are. 
Me either. Is your mom going to kill you? No, no. <laughs> she's probably going to be, she's like, what is cannabis? It's so cute from, I love, yeah, my parents yeah. are great, but they're like, what does that mean? So anyway. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So we had to, the biggest pivot that we had to make and the hardest one by far was shifting our supply chain and sourcing. So um, when I started Farm Girl, the most obvious way that I was kind of talking about earlier to do something good in the world uh, and something I was really passionate about and it wasn't a marketing stick or anything like that was the fact that we were only sourcing American grown flowers. And, you know, as we talked about, I grew up on a farm in, in Indiana. Um, we're both Midwestern girls. Love that. Uh, yeah. And agriculture was really important where I grew up and I grew up on a farm. Um, we cash cropped it out. Um, but just all around us, uh, agriculture was king, basically. And all the stories I read were about how American flower farmers were going out of business at a very rapid rate. Um, and most of that aligned perfectly with the mid-90s when one of the large e-com companies changed sourcing, the main sourcing model from North America to South America. And since then, just, I mean, you know, we went from 500 rose farmers to eight rose farmers, you know, like that, huge numbers like that. Um, and so I thought, well, this is something I can do to help bring flower egg back. And I was really naive, just super naive. Everything, all of my research was like Google, you know, <laughs> and uh, talking to a few farmers. And I naively thought that all of these flower farmers that wanted, that I was talking to that wanted more business would basically see me riding in on my white horse with my checkbook flailing in the air and be like, I'm here to save the day, guys. Don't worry. Gotcha. You know? <laughs> And they didn't, you know, they were like, who is this? And what is this whole e-com thing? This internet thing I'm very, very wary of could go away tomorrow, you know? Yeah. And, you know, my dad has done it this way. My grandpa did it this way. And I only sell the wholesalers. I don't sell direct. Um, and I don't want to change my model. I don't want to change what I grow, you know, the crops that I grow, the flowers that I grow aren't what you want, but I don't want to change them because this is what we've always grown. Even if nobody's buying those Shasta daisies now or Alstroemeria or whatever, um, you know, it was so much tougher and everything was relationship driven. And so I did the rounds and I built the relationships and I thought this is good, still going to work, still going to work. And for years, like I, I knew probably three years before I did it that I was probably going to have to do it. I just didn't want to. So I, I was exhausting every area, every, you know, thing I could think of to, to make this work. And it just couldn't work. Um, you know, the industry didn't, you know, I was fighting really hard to help save an industry that didn't necessarily want to be saved by me, mm -hmm. especially. And so, yeah, I, I finally, um, got to the point where I was like, okay, I either have to stop growing my business and I was actually told by somebody in the industry whose job is to educate American consumers to want to purchase American flowers, which I was doing, and he was no help. <laughs> um, <sighs> it, it also was, uh, it's a big old boys network. I'm just gonna say like, it's, um, you know, it makes sense when you think about it. Of course, farmers are typically men. Mm -hmm. um, I love that there's new farmers in the space. There's a lot of women coming into it, which is awesome, especially flower farmers that are amazing. Um, but it was a good old boys network and there were several companies that wouldn't sell to me. There were several companies that would sell to my male counterparts and I would have to then go back to them and say, I have proof that you're selling 
to these male counterparts, but telling me that you're not. Um, oh there was a lot of those, that type of thing going on behind the scenes. And I'm getting beat up a lot in the flower industry right now for just stating what, what's going on. But I firmly, just as a person, I believe that if you sweep things under the carpet, nothing is going to change. 100%. And so I just, yeah, I just want to be real about it because I want to see change. So other women coming into it that do want to buy American grown flowers can, you know, mm-hmm. um, it didn't work for me because I, I couldn't wait for them to actually come around to this way of thinking because I was getting, um, on average, we got 26% of our orders, um, that last year before we switched in 2016, uh, for holidays, uh, we were receiving far less 10 to 12% of our confirmed orders from domestic flower farmers we were receiving. Oh my and, gosh. Like how do you run a business that way? Yeah, you can't. Right. <laughs> so, literally we would then have to without any warning, but there wasn't even like a couple days out like, Oh, I know I promised you, you know, 4,000 stems of lilies, but I'm going to only be able to send you 400. And it's like, Mm. how can I, how can I do that? So then what we'd have to do is work with one of the large scale wholesalers and pretty much buy out their inventory. And then we'd have to change all of our recipes last minute, which thankfully our model allowed for because you don't know what the flowers are going to look like when you get them. (laughs) And then logistically it was a nightmare because we, you know, it's so much easier when you have one recipe for all of your, your designers to follow. But instead, we would have 20 recipes they would have to follow because we just had to buy anything we could get our hands on last minute because none of our confirmed orders showed up or 10, 10 to 12% showed up. Mm-hmm. So when everybody in the industry right now that's beating me up for coming out and talking about this, it's like, no, like this is there's not going to be any positive change. And nobody nobody can run a business that way, a successful business. Because then when we would have to buy out the wholesalers, we're paying 30 or 40% minimum, more than what we would have spent. And then we just literally work 22 to 24 hours a day. My team, I just can't say enough about them. They work their tails off. Like last Mother's Day, we put a RV in the parking lot and the managers basically had two hours off to sleep in the RV. I mean, that's how hard my team works. And so to go back to my team and say, yeah, we didn't make any money. We worked our butts off. We scaled six to seven X what a normal busy day is, which is really hard to do (laughs) with manufacturing. And you guys worked so hard and I appreciate it, but we actually can't, you know, we're in the red for the holiday because we had to go buy all of these flowers last minute because our order didn't show up, you know, our orders didn't show up. So there's just, I mean, I'm not going to work that hard and I don't want to ask my team to work that hard. I don't know anybody that would work, you know, I mean, the longest day I worked last Mother's Day was 26 and a half hours, which oh is more gosh. than a day. Nobody I know is going to work that I don't think Beyonce hard. even works that many hours in a day. Exactly. <laughs> then have a bunch of, you know, negative Nellies talking about, you know, me choosing imported flowers over my values. It's not that at all. I just want to be able to scale a company. And, you know, last year we bought about $5 million worth of flowers. And over 3 million of it was, was American Mm -hmm. and 2 million was imported. And that's going to continue to flip where it's probably going to end up being 90% imported and 10% American grown because we're buying all we can possibly get already in America. So, um, there's only one, you know, we could only go further away. So that's what we've done. It was hard though, to, to announce to the world. And, you know, I wrote a letter and, uh, sent it out to all of our, our lists and to put on social media. It's still on our website a year later, even, and just explain the why. And remarkably, and just uh, so grateful, uh, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. 
people had such great things. They were really happy and appreciative that we were just really open and honest about why we were doing it. And um, our sales did not suffer at all. We still have an American grown bouquet on our website, but um, it's usually between one and 2% of our orders. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what I found is, you know, people want, they like the aesthetic, they like the brand and the company. They like that we're authentic and we'll tell them how it is and not, you know, just, you know, we could have just flipped and taken all the local verbiage off our website, but we didn't, we decided to like really let people know why, but it was, it was really hard. And I, you know, there's a long moment, several moments of fear on, is this going to take my business? You know, mm-hmm. but we man, did it. <laughs> I, but that it just like showing what, as you were saying all those things, I mean, it's like, if, I mean, on, it just proves that entrepreneurship is a long term, it's a commitment and you have to be willing to pivot. You have to be willing to step up to the plate to change. I mean, and business in order, like having a sustainable business is having a sustainable revenue model and sourcing in this case, like you had to change. And, but I love how you're so transparent and authentic with it and like how sharing that news and communication with everyone in, in your network that you possibly could at that time too, just shows like different ways that people can handle things. And it's not this, okay, now I need to shut down or, or what have you in that, in that case. Um, so a couple last questions for you personally is when was the time that you felt like you were most challenged? Like when was that moment that you're like, Oh my gosh, can I keep doing this? What is happening? Yeah, I think the sourcing was a big one, but then, um, another one that was the hardest, absolutely the hardest, uh, moment of having a business was last year in February, actually. Um, we had kind of just a a breaking point as a company internally. So in 2016, like I said, we went from 4.4 to 10.2 million. And I kind of coined that the year of just keeping up. Mm -hmm. Like we just ran, we sprinted. Everything was a sprint, but you had no, you know, like in junior high when you have to like, you know, sprint the the long sides of the track and walk the corners. We had no corners to walk. (laughs) That's such a great analogy. Right. That's what I felt like. I was like, oh my gosh, could we just get a second, like one second to slow, slower than a sprint. Could we just do a jog or something? And, you know, but we don't want to jog as far as revenue goes. I just wanted it operationally. Like, you know, my husband is so like, sick I need of to breathe. Probably, yeah. He's, he's so sick of hearing me say, can I just get a break? That was like, my, can I just get a break? You know? Um, so it was, it was, uh, just a high growth year and we just sprinted and, we put all of our energy, everybody put all of, you know, we put all of our energy into just keeping up. And what happened was we didn't put any thought into, you know, I put a lot of thought into the company as far as what benefits are we providing? What's our pay? How can we make sure that we're providing good jobs? And I thought that was enough, but it wasn't enough because I didn't put any energy into our culture. And it hit a breaking point. Um, You know, we were growing so quickly from like, 19 to 40 employees, then 40 to 80 employees, like overnight. I mean, so when you're bringing in that many people and you're not putting any effort into the culture of the company that you're building, it is hugely detrimental to the the overall success of the company. And I found that out. So we had kind of a, a boiling point with, 
you know, some employees not being happy and it's spreading. And, um, you know, for me, I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm, you know, just started a 401k for them. And, you know, I, I have full medical benefits that are the same that my husband has at Facebook. Like what more do they want? And what they wanted was the values of the company that I talk about in podcasts like this to actually filter down to their level, you know? Mm. And I hadn't done a good enough job of, of doing that. And so, you know, I was hearing feedback from team members about, yeah, it's all great that you say this, but how do we see it in our day to day? And it was humbling. It was really yeah. humbling. And I was like, wow, oh my goodness. Um, I have failed at this in a big way and I need to fix it. I need to fix it fast. So we can continue to grow at this. And I had to like really slow down. Like we didn't do hundred percent growth last year. Um, I had to slow down and, and reallocate my time, you know, cause for me, I'm, you know, I'm doing, we don't have this huge fancy C-suite. We have an amazing, I'll call it, you know, D suite of people that are the doers. Mm-hmm. We have amazing floor managers and all of that, but we don't have like a CFO, a CMO, a CTO, a CIO, any of those. It's just, you know, me doing those things. So the marketing I'm doing, the finance I'm doing, wow. you know, everything, the product development I'm doing, the everything, you know, and they're, you know, my team, I can't say I'm doing everything. Like they, they kill it. They're amazing. Um, but as far as all the things that go into building a company, I was doing and working 22 hours a day at it. However, I needed to stop doing a lot of those things. So we even like way, um, you know, there was one month I did zero marketing even, I just didn't have time. And so I'm like, okay, I have to like stop all of these things and I need to focus on our culture and I need to reallocate my time to this. And it did slow down our growth last year. Um, from where we could have been, but that was okay because now we're in a much better place to be able to, to, to ramp it up again and, Mm. and to keep it going. But I had to pause and, um, admit that I failed too. Number one, like I just failed big time. Um, and I didn't do what was right for my team and I didn't even know it because I was so focused on growing the company to provide better jobs for them and giving them benefits. But I, you know, wasn't doing a good enough job of just, you know, building the culture in a way that would provide a job that they would want to come into every day. Mm-hmm. And so we changed it and we spent a lot of time, um, we're, you know, building a culture deck right now, kind of like the Netflix culture deck. If anybody listening to this has not read it, go read it. It's amazing. It was life changing for me. Um, is that a book? It's, um, Netflix put out this, uh, deck. It's a slide, basically, presentation. No way. Yeah, it's amazing. And it, it talks about how they've built their culture at Netflix. There's another one, a hospitality one, that we just found that a friend of mine sent me that is, I would say, arguably even better than the Netflix one um, that a hotel chain put out. Um, I forget what it's called. I mean, I'll send it to you. Oh, um, yeah. If you remember, send it to me because I think I know I which will. one you're talking about. It's amazing. Um And so we just really, you know, the managers were putting a lot of emphasis in this. We just did a manager's retreat a couple weekends ago where we started building our own culture deck and talked about how we're going to implement it. So it's a continuous process. um, And we've been working on it for a year. And I have to say the energy at our workshop right now with 108 people versus when we only had 70, when that occurred, 60 or 70, is amazing. It's so much better. Um, You know, there were a few days I even like, you know, I would didn't want to come into work. I would like sit in my car a couple blocks from the workshop and be like giving myself a pep talk. Like you can do this. Like you got this, you know, like go Mm. in there with a smile. And that's not a good place to be when you, you yourself don't even want to go in because the culture is so bad. Um, and now like, you know, it's, it's just so different and it was so worth, 
uh, putting the effort into really turning it around. And we're still not there all the way, but we're getting there. Yeah, I mean, I I love thank you for sharing that because I think it brings up a really good point too. as a reminder. I mean, I catch myself sometimes even in terms of like, when we look at numbers, we think that okay, if we're not constantly like the numbers not increasing, it's not increasing, like, okay, either I failed or did something wrong. But it sounds like in your case, too, sometimes it's better to slow down to implement some of the key things like a company culture in order to go fast later on and get that right versus having it having it later and I think we can all apply that including myself to so many things in our business that it's like is this a breakdown or a breakthrough moment exactly exactly and now we can sprint again you know where we wouldn't have been able to we would have been on a very slow plotty jog (laughs) yeah like hey just running uh ultra marathon no my first marathon I ever ran a long time ago. I used to run. Uh, I have a picture of a speed walker passing me at the finish line. And that's what it would have been. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. No marathon running. Oh man, this is a mental, that is such a mental thing. Mm -mm. A long time ago. Not anymore. (laughs) Yeah. That's crazy. Oh my gosh. Um, Okay, my last question, I always ask this on every interview is what's been a really impactful book that you've read? Yeah, I've read a lot of them. Um, honestly, I, you know, I've read all the business books and there's amazing ones. Uh, the Lean Startup was great. Um, the Hard Thing About Hard Things was great. Um, but the best books for me are anything written by Brene Brown. Mm. Uh, she's my spirit animal. And um, I joke that if there is an exit for Farm Girl and uh, I have the financial independence to do this, then I'm going to pay her speaker fees just to go to dinner with me. <laughs> so... <sighs> Um, uh, she's amazing. Do you know what her um, speaker fee is? It's probably really high. <laughs> I would have met. I don't know. I now I'm curious. I I'm gonna guess in the six figures. Yeah, I, I would definitely say. I would think like two fifty or something. I don't care what it is. Um, I'm going to pay it. <laughs> well, maybe we can split the difference someday. That would be great. <laughs> we can, that would like, be amazing. <laughs> pull a bunch of people together and say, okay, here's your buy-in. If you want to go to dinner we with Brene, totally do that. Oh my gosh, right? I, I find that her books help me. You know, like they're you know they're personal kind of self-help books, but they help me so much in business. Like being vulnerable with my team has it, it, it's so much better than, you know, having to put on a big face of like, Oh, we, you know, I, you're sharing with them, like, this is a challenge and getting all their buy-in and how can we fix this um, together is so much better. I just find her books are, are just so amazing good. to me. They're so good. And so anything by Brene Brown, um, the, her latest one, I just finished, uh, I listened to all her audiobooks all the time and I just listened to it again for the third time and such good tidbits. Uh, the that wilderness you can, so- one, right? Yeah, Braving the Wilderness. It's oh, great. Okay, that's come up multiple times. I got to put that on my list as the next one to do. It's awesome. It's okay. so good. Uh, We're starting a, a, a manager's book club at work, and that's on my list mm-hmm. for all the managers to read. Yes. Okay, awesome. <gasps> Christina, this has been fantastic. Thank you for giving us one of your 22-hour work days today. <laughs> oh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> this is definitely one of the most enjoyable hours of today. Yes. So thank you. Oh, my gosh. And you guys listening, I'm going to link to Farm Girl Flowers in the show notes so you can check it out there as well or obviously visit on your own. It's amazing. You guys are – it's just – It's fantastic. Thank you again so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. No problem. Thank you so much, Amanda, for having me. It was a blast. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to today's podcast episode. For more information, check out SheDidItHerWay.com. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love for you to leave me a review on iTunes and let me know what you think. Until next time, keep doing it your way.